Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Hey everyone, this is Chidam Kippel here hosting the What I Wish I Knew podcast by Dental Head Start. This is a subject that is perfectly suited to what I wish I knew because it is everything I wish I knew a few years ago as a dentist. Dr. Tim Maxwell is a very, very bad dentist. Now, what I mean by that is he practices biomimetic aesthetic dentistry, B-A-D. It's pretty hilarious, actually, because when I first came across it on Instagram, I thought, what is this page about bad dentistry? But actually, it's a concept that is fast taking over the really traditional, long-standing approaches to restorative dentistry. I'm talking traditional full crowns. Tim and his colleagues that formed the group around bad dentistry really challenge these methods of um, restoring teeth. They highlight how just how destructive and reductive and unnecessary they are. And in its place, they propose that we can take advantage of really these fantastic concepts behind modern adhesive dentistry. Modern adhesive dentistry or biomimetic dentistry really offers so many advantages to the patient. It's more aesthetic, it's more ethical, it's far more conservative for the tooth. In the vast majority of cases, it will certainly extend the life of the tooth because just of just how conservative it is. But all of these concepts behind biomedic aesthetic dentistry, he gets into. So he walks us through the exact concepts behind the prep design, adhesion, immediate dentine sealing, and all of the practical things that will allow you to start practicing bad dentistry tomorrow. So he starts by telling us exactly what bad dentistry is and how it started. Yeah, so bad dentistry was basically, it literally came out during COVID. Like, um, I remember like we're in lockdown in COVID. I was like talking to, I had a group chat with like Bill Gurgis, um, Mihir Shah and Steve Schiffenhaus, you know, Steve from the, the BAARD Institute in the U.S., Steve's nuts. He's like this this dude from Arizona. He's got like a hundred guns, like all these machine guns. He's like the most passionate dentist in the freaking world. Like this guy is amazing, like incredible dude. And um, no one's got a better handle on the science than, than Steve. And um, and we were chatting one day, and and I was like, dude, like we should start like a biomimetic. There's no, there's like no biomimetic courses in Australia. Like no one's teaching biomimetics. And um, so we're talking to Steve, and I was like, dude. You need to bring B-A-A-R-D, which is like, uh, I don't even remember what it stands for. It's like the Biomimetic Advanced Adhesive Restorative Dentistry, like the longest acronym in the world, but pretty cool. So, um, so Steve is like, uh, I was like, dude, you need to bring, we need to do BART Australia. Like there's nothing like this in Australia. And he was like, oh, why don't you guys just do it? And why don't you call it like uh, Biomimetic Adhesive Dentistry? And then, and then it'd be bad. Like how cool would that be? And I was like, dude, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. But, uh, so I said to Bill, I was like, dude, biomimetic adhesive dentistry, like we're doing this. And then Bill was like, nah, biomimetic aesthetic dentistry because we'll actually make it look good. And I was like, actually make it look good? Like, are you saying the American guy's work looks like shit? And 
I mean, it does, but no, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's really clever because biomimetics uh, implies that there's, it's, it's all about functional, but we also want to make things yeah. look good as well. So when, you know, I, I have to, I admit when I came across bad dentistry on Instagram for the first time, I had to do a double take and go, what on earth is bad dentistry? And I think I told you a moment ago, I have you saved on my phone as Tim, bad dentist. Um, And so for for those who don't know what it is, um, what is, I guess, biomimetic aesthetic dentistry? What's the philosophy behind it? So I think we all arrived at biomimetics through like a separate pathway. Like for me, when I graduated, like, I mean, I love dentistry, but like, I mean, I think everyone feels it when they graduate that like a lot of what we do is fairly destructive, that, that you, especially when you graduate and your armamentarian is literally extraction filling crown, right? Like, or bridge. Okay. So you graduate and I find that like we're doing fillings and if it's big, you do a crown and you're just cutting the tooth down. And I think everyone sort of realizes just how much tooth goes up the high volume when we're doing those sort of crown preps. Mm. So, I mean, and that's why I, that's why I really got into orthodontics when I first got, when I first couple of years out, cause it's non-destructive. It's the only thing we do where we make smiles look awesome, but we're not drilling away teeth. And I think um, it just comes down to whether that, whether that frustrates you or not, that idea of just cutting a tooth down to a little stump. Um, so that's where I got into biomimetics. Cause I think biomimetics is like a really cool way. It uses the science. It uses like the most modern materials to reconstruct a tooth. Uh, in a natural way so you're mimicking the natural structure of a tooth you're 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 not cutting a tooth down to stunts you're preserving that bio rim of tissue um you're doing things that are going to strengthen that tooth and hopefully prolong its life and, and really put off a root canal compared to a crown and uh, it's a really cool philosophy and, it, and it's modern dentistry and um and yeah we just felt that that no one was uh, no one was teaching that in australia oh, i think it's like such a um a good thing to be teaching dentists because i have this memory of i was only like a year out of uni and i had this guy come in and he had a massive mod amalgam he ended up having yeah. a root canal therapy. So I've, you know, done an, this huge access cavity through his MOD. So he's got an MOD, a massive root canal, like through the center. And I just thought to myself, if I go ahead and do a, I've only got a thin buckle on a lingual wall. If I go and do a full crown prep and if the contours mm. of that crown are such that, you know, my margin is down near past the point of, you know, the greatest curvature or whatever it's called, yeah. And I'm stepping in. I'm literally just drilling off the only two bits of good wall mm. of tooth structure left, and it just didn't make sense yeah. to me. And and um, that's around that time was when um, this is back in like 2010. We'd invested in a Cerec yeah. machine, and we got the first uh, yeah. uh, a red cam. It was I know a little powder back then, um, <laughs> but it actually made absolute sense to me. And I and I feel like in the generation before us people didn't have faith in ad- adhesive dentistry. Um, yeah. and, and obviously you've learned a lot about adhesive dentistry and, and how much it, it's advanced. Yeah, and, and that's, that's huge, like especially for upper premolars. Like we were always taught at uni, like lower premolars, you probably get away without a post, but upper premolars, like you definitely need to have a post because of the, the force around her and the shape of the tooth. But anyone who's ever done a root canal on an upper premolar, once you stuck a post down there and then you've done a core and then you prep it away, it's exactly what you said. You're literally left with a root stump with a post and some composites sticking out of it. And then we're sticking a crown on top of that. It's crazy. Like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
but that's just been the dogma for the last, what, 100 years, right? Yeah, that's true. And every single dentist listening to this would have at some point extracted a premolar root stump because the whole cra- um, crown fractured um, at the at the bone level. Yeah. So I think um, yeah. biomimetic dentistry is amazing. And if it can be aesthetic, what a, what a bonus. So what are the, yeah, kind, of, the kind of treatments that you guys um, uh, teach in um in sort of as part of the philosophy? So I'd say that our biggest thing is, is really following the, the Steve Schiffenhaus barred overlay prep design. That's a really big thing about getting away from crowns. And we're really following a lot of what uh, Graham Milicic, I don't know if you've ever attended any Graham Milicic lectures. Like he's this Kiwi guy, like he's just this incredible mind and, and he talks a lot. If you ever get a chance to watch one of his lectures, He's like one of the most interesting lecturers you'll, you'll ever see about, about the structure of teeth. And basically what he talks a lot about is at the biorim of the tooth. So what we talked about before, we're talking about that, that, that third of the tooth below the greater curvature. That's where a lot of the strength of the tooth lies. And, and, and when we do a crown prep, about 70% of the volume of that tooth turns to dust when we do a crown prep. Like we, we, we just t- we're weakening that tooth so much. And... That was all we could do for a hundred years because we didn't have adhes- we didn't have good adhesives and we didn't have the technology to be able to rebuild a tooth without having to create that mechanical retention. But we know now that we've got these amazing materials and techniques. Um, it's just that dentistry is so slow to catch up. Like I went through. I mean, I graduated twenty fourteen, so what six years ago. And, and there was nothing about this in our undergrad course. And I think a lot of the um, lecturers used to call, well, a lot of the, uh, the government dentists who we worked through used to call composite, composite. And we were like, <laughs> and we were like dude, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's 2021. Like anyone who still thinks that composite's a crap material, uh, you just don't know how to use it. <laughs> okay. Let's say you've got it. We're visualizing a tooth you um, do a prep and they say, you know, you need a one millimetre margin, you know, to do a ceramic Mm. onlay style prep or like a half crown. Now, if, you know, my enamel is only 0.9 millimetres all the way around, Mm. then I am making my margin 0.8. I want to stick to enamel. I'm not going to go to one millimetre because the textbook said so. That's something I, uh, that's a personal preference. I don't know what your yeah. thoughts on that are, but I am so yeah. big. I, I, I think enamel trumps the hard rules over ceramic yeah. thickness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the big things for me is that um, I worked at a practice, uh, never used ceramic before, not since, uh, not since uni. And we went to work at this practice for three years and we only had a, spe- a speed fire. So we didn't have a, like a, we didn't have like a programmatic oven or anything that could fire Emacs efficiently. So we were using Celtra Duo and, and, and I know I had five Celtra Duo conventional crowns fracture in like the first year. Um, I went and did the course with Lawrence Lau in, in Sydney, the Ceret course at the Dead Supply Serona. And I mean, these guys introduced us to the fact that ceramic is, is really weak under tension and shear stress. And, and when you've got a conventional crown design and you've got those axial walls, those corners, the ceramics under a lot of shear stress and, and that's when ceramics at its weakest. So if you think about a conventional crown prep design, like that is the most, what's the word for it? That's, that's, that's the least fracture resistant ceramic preparation design, right? Because the ceramics under sheer stress around the edges, as soon as you go into an onlay style prep where you've got a really flat surface, your ceramic is under compression. 
And that's when ceramics are the strongest. So if we convert, compare a conventionally looted Emacs crown on a conventional crown prep design, you're really wanting that two millimetres of thickness to make sure the ceramics got strength. And obviously that means more reduction. So as soon as we go into a flat prep design where we're not prepping up to your walls and we're bonding that ceramic in place, number one, our ceramics bonded so it's stronger. And, and number two, it's entirely under compression. So we can do a much thinner ceramic design. So you can, you can go down to 0 0.8, 0 0.9 millimeter Emax, which if it was my two, if that's what I'd want all day, you know, I don't want my tooth drilled away. Yeah, <laughs> I, want my sure. tooth, I want my tooth kept where it is and I want that ceramic strong and, and, in addition, Graham Milicic's work shows that those uh, those bonded onlay designs will strengthen a tooth more than a crown ever will. So if you've got a cracked tooth, like pretty much a virgin tooth with a crack in it, and you're going to go and drill that down to a stump, like it's it's crazy. It just shouldn't be done. Okay. So let's say I'm going to get you to walk us through um, a very, very typical biomimetic onlay prep design. So the example I'll give is a lower molar. It's got a mm. big MOD uh, amalgam and it's, it, it's yeah. leaking, it's failing, but it's, it's vital. Um, yeah. So big MOD, lower molar, walk us through your prep design. All right. So number one, I'm going to get all the restorations out of there under rubber dam. All right. You've got to have mm -hmm. that rubber dam on. All right. It's 2021. <laughs> you got to have rubber dam on. Right? <laughs> and that's going to piss my girlfriend off because she's a dentist and she does not use rubber dam unless okay. absolutely necessary. And that's totally cool. That's totally cool. Oh, uh, way to throw her under the bus there. Whoa. But if, but if you want to do good dentistry, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying this to wind her up. But um, no, no, so absolutely. I'm, I'm going to numb the patient up and I'm going to get a rubber dam on. All right. And I usually use a less expensive rubber dam for this initial stage because we're going to be using a rubber dam after the cementation later on. So what I'll do is remove all of the restorations and have a look at the two. What are we dealing with? We're going to look at the thickness of our casts and we're going to see if they need to be capped. All right. Because that's one thing we definitely don't do enough of is cap casts. Especially these days, we want to be minimally invasive. We don't want to take cusps away, but you've got to do it. If the cusp is unsupported, it's going to fracture. So number one, I'm going to take the restorations out and any cusp that's unsupported, I'm going to reduce down. All right. So assuming we're doing a full crown, an alternative to a full crown, we're going to be reducing all of those cusps down. So we've removed our restoration. I will cut depth cuts in all of the cusps with a little fissure burr. I usually aim for a 1.5 millimeter depth cuts. I find that if you reduce by about 1.5 millimeters, when it comes time to scan with your serrate, you've usually got about one millimeter, right? We've never reduced enough. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> and every fracture of a serrate I've had is, is really because I didn't yeah. I didn't check occlusally. One little, sorry to um, override your your tip, but one little mini tip that um, I wanted yeah. to share is I always, always check the occlusion um, before starting. So I'm really familiar yeah. with where the contact points, the occlusal contact points are before I start because I need a full like one, like two millimetres right at that point. And the worst thing that exactly. can happen is you can over-reduce a part that didn't even have a lot of occlusal contact mm. but under-reduce where all your stress is going to be. So yeah. I, I learned that the hard way. Check your occlusion before and make sure you reduce enough there. Yeah, and the depth cuts are essential because if you're prepping under rubber dam, you don't have that opportunity to get the patient to bite into occlusion and, and have a look. So you're not visually checking. And I, and I just do the depth cuts. I don't even check. I just scan it on the serrate. And, and, you know, because, again, because we're keeping our ceramic under compression, we're not going to be too stressed if we're under reduced, all right? Because if I'm doing an Emax or a Tessera and it's uh, and it's it's zero point eight mil, I'm not going to stress about that because I know it's probably going to last.
It's that time of year again. Before June 30, we have to renew our indemnity insurance. And when I look for an insurer, I'm looking for someone who's going to be there when I need their help. They're going to act fast and they're going to be by my side so I can practice with confidence. I get all of that from Dental Protection Limited. What I love about them is that they're more than just an insurer. They're actually here to help us, to give us content and support us with medical legal situations. And most importantly, help us avoid these situations. The content they produce is the best content out there from an insurer like them. Renewal notices are out in May. To make sure you get all of these added benefits, sign up by June 30. I can say from personal experience, when you need help, you'll be glad you're with Dental Protection Limited. Thank you, Dental Protection Limited, for supporting me in my career and the Dental Head Start podcast. When you take away the original, uh, let's say it's this in this example, we've taken away our original big MOD amalgam. When mm. do you decide to, you know, f- restore or fill the undercuts, or um, or, or do you ever um, place a, a direct core or something in there? Yeah, so that's a really good question because a lot of people, especially a lot of ceramic dentists in the past, it was this no core concept. And, um, and as you know, in biomimetics, we talk a lot about the biobase and the biobase is really the key to biomimetic dentistry. Like the, the onlay is, is, is the least important factor. That's just the enamel replacement. But really what we're trying to do is get the core of that tooth really, really strong and as strong as a natural tooth. Everything bonded together and connected as strong as a natural tooth would be. So we don't look at it as a core design like a crown. We look at it as in we're just hoping that the main complication you can get is, say, an onlay fracturing, but we're, we're trying to protect it. So if that onlay ever fractures, if anything ever happens, the base of that tooth is going to be, is going to be sound. The fractures are not going to propagate through the composite into the tooth. So we do do composite buildups, but we try to build up where the dentine would be. So we're replacing dentine with composite and we're using composites like uh, APX from Kurare, which has a really similar mechanical properties to dentine. So we're, we're, we're building up. Um, the dentine portions of the tooth with a with with a composite, and we think about composite like dentine, and then we're replacing our enamel with a ceramic, which we use the ceric for. So absolutely, it's not just rip everything out and then chuck a ceramic on top. You've got to think about it. You've got to think about what where, where you're going to replace dentine with composite, and where you're going to replace enamel with ceramic. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good tip because without um, you know putting some core material into your undercuts, your prep mm. design can be um, unnecessarily aggressive yeah, just to take that into account because obviously mm. with um, uh, onlays, the path of insertion also needs to be honoured. If yeah. you've got big undercuts when you've often, which, which you do, which when you remove big amalgams, um, you yeah. can really save a lot of dentine, save a lot of tooth structure. You're a tooth hero yeah. saving all Absolutely, the dentine. Right? hundred <laughs> percent. So basically like after we've done our depth cuts, we're reducing the cast and we're aiming for a really flat, a really flat design flared out into proximal walls, everything really flat. You've got to think about, you want that ceramic under compression. Then it gets to the bonding stage. So I don't know if you want to fire in with a question there. I, I have a question about um, how do you connect up your interproximals with your Oh gosh, I forgot the I forgot the you know the yeah, like the flat the table yeah. the table yeah yeah so so I love doing it with uh, I love doing it with a football burr with your handpiece on its side so you're really creating that nice smooth transition from the interproximals up onto the top of the mm, tooth that's a really good tip um, yeah so I think a really a really good way of looking at it like in our in our fight to be minimally invasive there can be that tendency to keep things really constricted but 
you've got to balance being minimally invasive with also doing an awesome restoration. And sometimes that does require you interproximally to really flare those walls out, get that enamel connected and get everything really smooth flowing transitions. But, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's really easy to look at the, look at the preps and see where we're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. And if anybody wants to check out um, Tim's preps, um, Tim actually posts tons of really, really high quality DSLR photos of his prep designs um, on Instagram. So what's your Insta? I think it's it's like uh, Google Tim Maxwell. Maxwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very cool, very cool. Yeah. And and um and you can actually follow Bad Dentistry where you guys repost a lot of um content from yeah. uh, other dentists where they're just um basically practicing dentistry under this under this um concept. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's basically all the marketing we have is some reposts and some memes, uh, some <laughs> some like some like really niche. Uh, the memes are gold. The memes. memes are gold. The, the memes funny. are good. I, I, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an okay marketing tactic because I think um, I think the alternative is what I saw. Uh, I saw someone uh, with their prime scan at the beach when they were advertising their course, scanning a flower, and. Um, <laughs> so, that's not really the marketing we want to be doing i think we're just going to keep making memes we're not going to be at the beach scanning our flower with our yeah that's a bit abstract let's get to bonding <laughs> let's get to bonding yeah right. <laughs> okay our prep is beautiful um yeah. oh by the way yeah, are you doing most of these in in-house like chair side or always always chair side with Sarah. yeah okay but you don't have to do them with Sarah. and i got heaps of questions from people asking how to temporize these yes um, it's the number one question that always comes up and still i don't have a great answer for them i, I mash a bit of composite on with my thumb and don't um yeah like bond it properly that's my uh, so idea just- of a temporization just do some IDS and send the patient home and some, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's an option, but um, I think if you, I think if the best place to look is Johan on Johan's Instagram. He has a, he has a saved video on temporizing onlays, which is a really cool video to go and have a look at. Uh, we've met a few people there, but there's a few different tactics and, uh, but you do have to be careful because when we're talking about bonding, obviously I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but we've done, a, we're really big on immediate dentine sealing in biomimetics. And the biggest mistake you can make is accidentally sticking your temporary to your IDS. And then when it comes time to delivery, finding out that your, your temporary composite is stuck to your IDS and you can't get it LT. off. And then, and then you've basically, um, yeah, you've basically stopped it. You've got to start again. Yeah. Look, I think a lot of us have been there and just gone, Oh, of course, or, or yeah. yeah, um, we can talk about how we get out of that little pickle later. Yeah. But let's say we, you are doing it chair side. Let's go back to chair side, and we can yeah. t- totally check out that vi- Johan's video on temporization. Um, yeah. When are you doing IDS exactly? If you're doing CEREC before your scan, so, after your scan? Yeah. So um, I'll basically IDS try and IDS everything, right? So what we're talking about here is is bonding the dentine when it's freshly cut. So there's a couple of advantages to IDS that, that I definitely wasn't aware of. And I only started, I really only started to get into this like two, three years ago and didn't realize how much of a difference it makes. And, and doing the Alamans biomimetic mastership at the moment, like the difference it makes is huge. So I've seen some, basically the, the main advantage of immediate dentine sealing is number one, you're going to get massively improved bond strengths, right? Because when we bond to dentine, like dentine is an organic structure with collagen in it and we're bonding to collagen fibers and those bonds take time to mature. 
So in biomedics, they call it decoupling with time, which is the concept that it takes about five minutes for your dentine bonds to reach full strength. And if you stress those dentine bonds with shrinkage of your additional layers of composite during that period, you can pull the composite, the bond off the floor of the dentine. So imagine you're doing a serrate and you cut your prep and then you bond your dentine. That dentine's got 30 minutes to mature by the time you come to put your serrate on. So a dentine bond done properly that's had time to mature will have a bond strength of about 50 MPA, which is higher than what we can bond to enamel. So that's when the enamel starts becoming less important because your dentine bond strengths are so good if you've done it properly and you've given it time to mature. So you imagine you've done your IDS, your serrate's taken 15 minutes to mill, um, five, 10 minutes in the furnace, you come time to stick it on, those dentine bonds are at 50 MPA and that restoration is not coming off under any circumstances. Yeah, that's amazing. And and so are you doing it before you take your scan? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'll do, that, that's the main reason why I'm using rubber dam during the prep phase is so that IDS is perfect because that IDS layer, you want that to be your primary your primary bond yeah that's if that's sticking to the tooth at 50 mpa your serrex is going to stick to this composite at about 40 mpa mm-hmm. so you the ids is your most important layer so you really want your ids to be done under rubber dam and with our ids we're always trying to use a two-step bonding system you're mm-hmm. going to get a lot improved bond strengths by using a two-step like Clearfield SE or OptiBond FL. All right? They're both the gold standard. So you, you really, if you're doing these, you should be trying to use one of those. Mm-hmm. And what about, um, are you doing any sandblasting, micro-etching? Yeah, absolutely. So with especially with Clearfield SE, you should be micro-etching the dentine. You're going to get improved bond strengths. OptiBond, you shouldn't be sandblasting your dentine, all right? And it's just to do with the difference in the chemistry of the material of the uh, of the bonding agents. But basically, I'll prep, I'll sandblast my dentine, I'll scrub my clear fill primer, and the primer is the most important thing for dentine bonding. And I'll be dipping my micro brush constantly back in, scrubbing it in, scrubbing it in. I'll mm-hmm. do like forty seconds of that, gently air thin to get your solvent out of there. Mm-hmm. And this is a really good tip: is that the biggest problem with single step bonding agents like all bond universal and things like that is that they've got their primer and their bond together, right? You have to air thin them to get rid of the solvent. But in that process of air thinning it, you're introducing air into your bond resin, which is going to thicken your air inhibited layer and it's going to reduce your bond strengths. Mm-hmm. So the huge advantage of using a two step is that you're putting your primer on, you're evaporating that solvent, and then you can put your bond on, and don't air thin your bond. Just use a clean micro brush to clean it up to make sure it's not pooling anywhere and then cure it, all right? And then you're going to end up with a significantly improved bond. And no single step can replicate that because you yeah. have to air thin it. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great tip. I always thought you had to air thin your bond as well, I guess, so to – Yeah, that's yeah, a really good so, tip. So this is one thing from the Alamans, the David Alleman is, uh, is, is, and they really push this, is that you should not be air thinning bond unless it's got a solvent in it. So it's a single step. But if it's a two-step, you should be air thinning your primer to get rid of the solvent. But that bond is just resin, right? Like it shouldn't be air thinned. You should be cleaning it up with a micro brush. Mm-hmm. And so after and you do it, yeah, after you like cure it, you take your scan, you take the rubber dam off, patient wants to mm. go and, you know, relax and have a cup of tea. Are we yeah. just, so if we sort of let that bonded cured layer become contaminated mm. when we come back to it how are we treating it 
So you, you really need a microetcher and you, re- you have to sandblast it, right? Again, when you so you're re- sandblasting yeah. the bonded, the cured yeah. bond. So what I'll do is I'll prepare the tooth, I'll scrub in my primer, put my bond on, cure it, then add a thin layer of flowable composite over all of the dentine. And then we try to keep that about 0.5 millimetres thick. The huge advantage of that is that the electrons from that flowable layer as it cures are going to diffuse into the uh, into the bond layer and, and completely cure the air inhibitor layer. So you want to be getting your primer in, your bond on, and then on a 0.5 millile- millimetre layer of flowable composite on top of that. And then we want to clear off all of the bond and flowable from our enamel margins. So I like to get a, um, a red band handpiece, dial it down to 10,000 RPM and go back around the enamel margins and re-expose all of the enamel, but being really careful not to expose any dentin. So you're not worried that that's going to affect your fits because you've just taken your scan? No, no, no. This is before scanning. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm doing my IDS, I'm doing my resin layer, and then I'm re-exposing the enamel and then okay. I'm doing the scan. Love it. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> It's 2021. We're used to cloud-based software enhancing every aspect of our lives. But what about something we use every day, our dental practice management software? Imagine something rethought from the ground up, designed for intuitiveness, leveraging what's possible in today's technology. Something that optimizes our daily workflows and does what modern dentists need to stay competitive and connected. Principal practice management software is this intelligent, efficient, and intuitive because it's 2021 and you can expect something more. Go to principal.dental to learn more. Now, patients outside having a cup of tea, absolutely you need a sandblaster when you get back in. I have so many mates who message me and they say they don't have a sandblaster at their practice and I've had that situation as well where, I mean, I started a new practice about, about three or four months ago two days a week and there was no micro etcher there and and yeah you, you just gotta hang it a diamond bird go back over really gently and, and just freshen up mm-hmm. all of that flowable yeah. enamel yeah and then mm. but really and then sorry after you've re-sandblasted it how what what's your bonding protocol mm. for the actual CEREC yeah so I try and use always use a heated composite and heated composites have like massive advantages over resins we have resin cements that we use primarily for ease of use. Um, not everyone has a heater for their, to heat up composite, but you can get one off. Um, I mean, I don't know if I probably shouldn't say this, but um, if it's like we need a TGA approval or whatever, but you can get one off eBay for about 80 bucks from China. And like, they're awesome. You're going to go to um, dental jail for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> don't get your composites off eBay. Disclaimer. <laughs> or veterinary bone plates. <laughs> but you can get it. You can get a composite heater from, for about 80 bucks. And um, if you basically the, the big advantage of using heated composites is number one, our resin cements kind of suck because they've got really low filler content and they've got low filler content to make them resins and really flowy. We can't cement with composite because it's not flowy. But if you heat it up, you can make it really, really flowy. And then you've got this composite bonding everything in. Number one, it's more color stable because everyone sees those online comeback years later with like brown lines around the margins from the resin just washing out over time and staining, whereas your composite's much more color stable. It looks a million times better and it's so easy. You've got like unlimited cleanup time. There's no stress trying to like 
floss resin out of the interproximals. Like sometimes I spend like five, 10 minutes just like really getting everything super clean before we're curing. But basically the way we do it, we're going to sandblast our prep. We're going to etch and spend and selenate our onlay, obviously. And then when it comes time to the cementation, what we do is if you have accidentally exposed some dentine when you were freshening up your enamel margins, then you should be priming because there's some dentine exposed. But if your dentine is totally covered by the flowable composite, then it's not critical to be using the primer again. So assuming I've got no dentine exposed, what I'll be doing is sandblasting my prep, cleaning it all off, etching it. And I usually etch for 20, 30 seconds just to get that enamel really, really frosty. Wash it all off. I'll put uncured clear fill bond, no primer, just the bond mm -hmm. onto the prep. Don't cure it. If you cure it, you're going to interfere with your seeding mm -hmm. later on. I'm putting a little bit of bond. If you're using a heated composite, you should be putting a little bit of bond on your enamel, on your onlay mm -hmm. as well. I'm, I'm getting, actually, there's two ways of doing this. Bill like came up with like the craziest idea that is awesome the other day. Um, he's like such a mad genius. He just comes up with this weird stuff, but like, my heated composite, I'll be pulling it out, putting it on my onlay and then squashing it on as hard as I can and then doing all my cleanup, right? What Bill does is he gets his composite, he puts it onto his onlay and he puts his onlay into the heater and he gets it like super hot. So he's pulling it out of the heater and his, his onlay has got like hot runny composite on it and then he's squashing yeah, it on cool. and like both ways. Are yeah, possible. cool. So how long do you have to leave it in the heater for? So it depends which composite you're using. Ideally, you should be using APX. It's the best composite for heating. And when you heat it up, it gets super runny. That's Cura APX composite. Mm -hmm. um, now, APX is like one of the only composites that if you leave it in the heater too long, it will actually set. Whereas I know I'm using FuelTech all day for my fillings and that doesn't set. I, I leave it in the warmer all day long. Um, but, but APX will set after about 15 minutes. So I chuck it in the warmer at 80 degrees. And I usually chuck it in about five minutes before it's time to cement. Um, and then, and then yeah, it gets nice and runny and you chuck it on. It's easy. Chuck it on. Chuck <laughs> it on, man. Just chuck it on and squeeze it. Squeeze it on. Get the next no, patient. that sounds amazing. Actually, it, I, I love that. So it, it sounds simple biomimetic aesthetic dentistry, but all of the little steps matter. And there are probably critical yeah. little things that, you know, young dentists coming out of conventional dental school that are doing that are just working against them. Either they're getting post-op sensitivity yeah. or they're um, weakening the tooth or, yeah. or reducing the longevity of the tooth. What are the, do you think the mm. top, like, you know, two or three top most common um, uh, mistakes that I guess that, young dentists are making just because that's what conventional uni taught them? Yeah, so I think the number one is, is, is crown prepping everything. There's, there's so many crowns. I, the only time I do conventional crown preps now is if I'm replacing an old crown, right? So I think in modern dentistry, there's very few indications for a full crown anymore right it's just we've got veneers we've got onlays we've got all these we've got veneer lays we've got all these amazing different preparation designs that there's really no indication for full crowns anymore right and i don't think that's controversial but i know that's going to be fairly controversial to some people especially having come out of dental school one thing i fought a lot of when i was doing a lot of conventional crowns was sensitivity you do get a lot of sensitivity with conventional crowns you're cutting away so much tooth you're exposing so much dentine that you're going to get sensitivity. And that's, I mean, unless you're doing a lot of zirconias and cementing them or looting them with GIC, um, like if you're doing adhesive dentistry and you're doing it and you're doing adhesively bonded crowns, like 
sensitivity is a huge issue. Number two, I think universities just don't teach bonding protocols properly. I think, um, yeah, I guess a lot of, um, they just don't. Like we went through uni and it, it, I only really learned two or three years ago why we actually like sprayed primer with air, right? Like it was always just at uni, you air thinning the bond and all that. <laughs> Whereas what, you're evaporating solvent, all right? But at uni it was just, oh, you just air thin the bond, chuck some OptiBond solo on there and, and thin it out, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just like that really simplistic view of bonding and it's not taught because we're taught in, we're teaching conventional crowns. So number one, I think avoiding crowns preps is, is a really cool thing to get into in the future. Because if you, especially if you're doing a lot of crown preps, and number two is learning how to bond properly. Mm-hmm. And we lay out those steps, but obviously you've got to tweak them at times. There's 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 different situations where those those rules don't apply and you have to make little changes. Number three, God, off the top of my head, um, <laughs> let me think. Um, I know, it's 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 IDS. It's do it quickly. IDS, right? Do yeah. it then and there while it's freshly cut. Hello. The whole concept of bad dentistry. So there is so many papers behind that concept of decoupling with time. Like we know that like a bond that is stressed within five minutes is going to fail. And like, it's just, it just boggles the mind that you come out of university and you don't know that. I don't think, I didn't realize it was, um, I actually didn't know that until you said I, I, Mm. Uh, like I was guilty of just like getting into it. So what about co- regular composites then? Doesn't I mean we're we're immediately putting composites straight out of the top over the top of direct fillings. Mm. We don't have five minutes yeah. to. So I mean, should we? Should we be waiting five like, minutes after we do our? All right. So there are one hundred percent biomimetic guys out there who have a timer and they put their bond and they put their flow on the they put their flow layer on and they put a timer on right. I know that, like, if I ever did that, my mates would give me relentless shit and that's just not happening. And I'm in, a, I'm in two super busy practices and I certainly don't have time to be sitting there for five minutes, right, waiting for a freaking bond layer to, to, to mature. But it's about changing the way that you're placing the composite to protect those deeper bonds that are a bit weak, right? So what that means is, number one, you've got rubber dam on, you're doing multiple class twos in a quadrant is applying your primer, applying your bond and applying your flowable over the top of the dentine, curing it all before you put your matrix bands on because that gives you time because we all know, especially when you're doing a quadrant, that fiddling around with the matrices takes time. So if you're putting your bond and your flow on first and then you're doing your matrix setup, that's going to that's gonna kill about mm-hmm. five minutes, right, which is pretty cool. Assuming you're just doing a single class two and the patient's booked in for 30 minutes, then other things you can do, for example, is applying your matrix setup and building your proximal wall first. Uh, Just building your proximal wall is going to take you a minute or two, right? And that proximal wall is going to be bonded to two enamel walls on the buckle and lingual, and it's going to protect those deeper layers of bond up against the pulpal wall there. And just by waiting two minutes, your your denting bond is 70% of the Mm -hmm. way there. Two minutes is better than nothing. Whereas if you're packing composite directly on to those deeper bond layers immediately and just curing your class two without building up a proximal wall, then, yeah, you're going to face issues with sensitivity because that's usually the issue is that if those bond layers pull off the pulpal floor, you're going to get that air pocket underneath and the patient's going to come back with pain yeah. on biting. And we've all had that, right, that pain on biting with composites. I used to like do a composite and I'd tell the patient, I'd be like, yeah, it's really common to get pain on biting. It's, and it is common, but it's not, it's not correct. You shouldn't be getting pain on biting with composites. All that means if you're getting pain on biting with your composites is that it's debonded. As the composites shrunk, 
the stress has pulled the bond off the dentin, you've ended up with an air pocket underneath there, and that's going to cause pain. Yeah, on that's bite. a really good tip about thinking about your sequence of your of your composite placement, mm. so that you are. I mean, you're going to have to wait that time anyway. Why not sequence it in a way yeah. that you're going to maximize that um, that dentin bond? So yeah, that's a, that's an awesome 100%. that's an awesome little tip. I'll add one thing more: is that is that one thing no one ever teaches you is that. From a biomimetic standpoint, is it a class one restoration is the most difficult. So because when you're thinking about C-factor, your class one has the highest C-factor C-factor configuration. So you're also going to be dealing with a lot of stress in those situations. And that's why you do these massive class twos and the patient's fine. And then you do like a little class one and the patient comes back with pain on biting. You know, and you're like, so, what the hell? Yeah, you're like, dude, I just squashed that in with my thumb. It was the quickest feeling ever. And it was like, what's the, what's the problem? But um, those class ones are really the ones where, where you should really be thinking about uh, before I add on an additional layer. That's It, it kind of gets complicated, but you, you need to think more about it in a class one, about, about allowing your bonds time to mature and how you place your composite. Yeah, love it. Um, Timmy, we've gone over time, but that was gold. There was actually so much what I wish I knew in there. I actually feel like I learned like seven things. How good. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.